You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me on this spiritual journey as we've been sharing Archbishop Sheen's reflections uh, during the war years. And um, I know that I've been blessed to uh, recently appear on EWTN television and uh, talking about Sheen's writings during the war. And of course, I think these uh, writings uh, need to be re-released and um, applied to today. Uh, war is raging in the Ukraine and Russia, and uh, it's raging in other parts of the world too. And so uh, I think we're trying to make sense of all of this. And I think Fulton Sheen has uh, the wisdom to share with us to say, you know, there's a recipe for success, and it's turning to God, uh, turning away from our sin, and, uh, of course, practicing virtue. So uh, we've been sharing some of this wisdom here with you uh, over the last few weeks, and we'll continue for a few weeks more. And so today I'm going to share a reflection. Um, it's entitled uh, The Natural Law of God. And uh, Fulton Sheen was uh, very clear with us that the reason why there's war and division is we've turned away from God's laws, um, the natural law. Um, the moral code, uh, moral law. And uh, again, we are paying a price for that. And so, uh, again, the way to uh, return to order is to return to God. And so uh, we will listen to Fulton Sheen from his Catholic Hour recordings from uh, 1944. And, uh, of course, enjoyed that. And then during the second half of our broadcast, we will uh, share with you a retreat, a reflection on the topic of kenosis. And so I just ask you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. This evening, the Catholic Hour again presents to the radio audience the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen. Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, Washington, D.C. The title of Monsignor Sheen's talk is The Natural Law of God. Monsignor Sheen. Friends, the air is full of post-war plans. But what is more important than any plan is to understand what makes one plan right and another plan wrong. Why, for example, a plan to reduce armaments rather than to increase them? Why a plan to grant freedoms to certain people 
rather than to enslave them. What we need to know is the basic standard by which all plans can be judged. As Juvenile of old said, quis custodiat custodes, which we might freely translate, who shall plan the planners? Upon what principle will we decide, force or morality? In answering these questions, we advance another step in our broadcast. Thus far, we have pleaded for unity among Jews and Protestants and Catholics. To break down bigotry, anti-Semitism, and anti-Christianity, we have promised to send to you, who write and ask for it, a booklet entitled, Friends. Since this spirit of charity can be achieved only by prayer, we ask, too, that everyone set aside an hour a day for prayer and adoration. Catholics in particular should make this in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. You remember last Sunday we said that the unity among us must not be a unity of churches which would do violence to truth and to history. It must be a unity for social purposes. So now we ask, what is the fundamental principle upon which Jews and Protestants and Catholics can unite? The answer is the moral law. What is the moral law? The moral law is a participation or indwelling of the eternal reason of God in nature and in man. Everything in the world is governed by law. Falling stones are governed by the law of gravitation. Animals by instinct and man by conscience. God's reason is in each of these things in a different way, directing them toward the perfection of their natures. But with man there is a difference. A stone must obey its law, but man merely ought to obey his law. A falling stone has no freedom. Its nature is determined, but man is free. Therefore, he can disobey. Every man, in other words, has a right to make a fool out of himself. Man is just as free to break the moral law of his conscience as he is free to break the law of gravitation. But in both instances, he hurts himself because he does what is unreasonable. And it is unreasonable because it is opposed to the eternal reason of God. Sin, therefore, is anti-reason. But you may ask, how does reason or conscience decide what is right and what is wrong? How can we know whether anything is good or bad? By using our reason. Our reason can investigate purposes. Everything has a purpose. Reason can discover it. A reason, a razor, for example, has a purpose namely to shave. But if I pervert that purpose, which is discoverable by reason, and use the razor to you a rock, not only do I not you the rock, I even destroy the razor. So likewise, man's reason tells him that he has a purpose. 
namely the attainment of truth for his intellect, goodness for his will, and life for his whole being. Whatever contributes to that purpose is good. Whatever distorts it is bad. As a pencil is good for writing, for that is its purpose, and bad for opening a can because that is not its purpose. So man is good when he fulfills the end for which God made him, the attainment of perfect life and truth and love. And he is bad when he does not. Right and wrong, therefore, are independent of our ways of thinking. Our standard is not public opinion or self-expression, but correspondence with the eternal reason of God. You cannot measure a cloth except by something that is outside the cloth. And you cannot measure moral ideas and say, for example, that our moral ideas are better than those of the Nazis except by some law which is outside both, namely God. If morality or decency meant only what we approve, then there never could be a right or a wrong. Hence, what is the war about? What makes certain notes right on a keyboard and other notes wrong if there's nothing but keys on the piano? What makes one person right and another wrong if there's no law outside of himself? The rightness and wrongness of notes is determined by their correspondence to the score. In like manner, what makes our actions right is the fact that they correspond to the eternal reason of God, and that is what we mean by the moral law. But it may be asked, why treat the moral law on a national broadcast? Does not everyone believe in the moral law? Not anymore. That is why we are at war, in order to defend it. There are even some in our midst who deny the moral law. One justice of the Supreme Court, for example, writes, and I am quoting him verbatim, the so-called immutable principles must accommodate themselves to the facts of life, for facts are stubborn and may not yield. I would like to confront this justice with one fact, the slaughter of the Jews in Germany. This is a stubborn fact. Would this justice say that the moral right of the Jews to life and freedom should give way to the stubborn facts? And if not, why not? If facts make right, then the persecution of the Jews is right. Must the immutable principles of right and wrong be changed to fit the way people live, as he says? Or must our lives be changed to fit the immutable principles of right and wrong? That is the question. And from another well-known jurist we hear, and I quote him again, Man must no longer search for God in law. But if there is no God in law, then there is no morality. 
And if there is no morality, then there is only force. The force of money, which is capitalism, the force of steel, which is militarism, and the force of the masses, which is Nazism, fascism, and communism. Dr. Robert Hutchins, president of the University of Chicago, summarizing the growing repudiation of the moral law in American politics, wrote during the past year, in law school I learned that law was not concerned with reason or justice. Law was what the courts would do. Law says Hitler is what I do. There is little to choose between the doctrine I learned in an American law school and that which Hitler proclaims. That from Dr. Hutchins. Why is it that the moral law does not play a more important role in our lives? It is because we have so concentrated on the wickedness of our military enemies that we have ceased to ask ourselves if we are really living by the moral law. We lay the whole burden on Hitler. No one doubts that Hitler has indeed contributed his share. But if Hitler committed suicide tomorrow, would peace and virtue automatically follow? Because disorder reigns, someone, of course, must be blamed. And Hitler thus becomes the scapegoat who takes away the sins of the rest of the world. Evil is always put outside of us. As a result, everywhere there is hate. Hate, hate. A well-known writer in this country has suggested exterminating all the Germans. And others have asked that Hitler be put in a cage and paraded through the streets so that onlookers could hiss at him. No wonder there is anti-Semitism. No wonder there is anti-Christianity. No wonder there is bigotry. This war has taught us to despise. And in teaching us to despise has given us a feeling of moral superiority which blinds us to our infractions of the moral law. Our hate has turned this war into a defensive, negative war against barbarism. Not a positive war for moral order. Only Germany and Japan have a positive goal, a definite purpose. And it is as wicked and as evil as hell. Russia, too, knows what it wants. But that is another matter. We know what we are fighting against. But do we know what we are fighting for? Ask your fellow citizen what this war is about and he will tell you to kill Hitler and Tojo. If he uses a slogan such as liberty, he will define it negatively in terms of freedom from these dictators. Oh, God, be good to us. Do we think that Hitler, once he is put in a cage, will be the indirect cause of our peace? 
Did peace come from exiling the Kaiser to a woodpile? Shall it be said of us that we are united only because we have a common hate? Do we think that victory in arms alone will save our civilization? Are we really blameless? How many of us can go to the corpse of this modern, tragic world of ours and lay our hand upon its cold flesh and say, I am innocent. We too stand in need of God's mercy and pardon, and perhaps the more so because to our country has been given the high mission and vocation of defending the rights of man, and therefore the moral law of God. We are not the creators of law. We are only its trustees. We are not the womb of freedom. We are the feeble instruments God uses to break chains that men may be free on the outside as they are already free on the inside. We are not the saviors of the world. We stand in need of salvation. This is not a war for freedom from certain dictators. It is a war to preserve the moral law of God and therefore the rights of man. Few nations have ever fought for such a noble ideal and few nations have ever realized it so little. And we are like one who might risk his life to save a child from death in traffic and then say the reason we did it was because we hated fire engines. Our deeds are unfortunately greater than our motivations. Our slogans are so weak. The morality for which we fight is so strong. If war is not to preserve the moral law of God, then it is not worth fighting. For as St. Augustine said, banish justice and morality, and what are empires but large-scale brigandage? Would that the stirring words of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address could be emblazoned across our skies so that we might once more understand the meaning of a moral ideal in war. You remember these words? With malice toward none. With charity for all. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in. To bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne battle and for his widow and his orphan. To do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all our nations. What are we fighting for? Lincoln said, for firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. To preserve morality, God does not need America or Great Britain or Russia. 
It is America, Great Britain, and Russia that need God. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Sheen as he continues to guide us in uh, understanding war and uh, also knowing that there is an answer to these wars and uh, we can find peace once again. And I love how he stresses um, throughout many of his talks about you know, whose side are we on? Uh, the Americans pray for victory. The British pray for victory. The Germans pray for victory. And everyone is praying that God would be on their side. But how often do we reflect and say, are we on God's side? And I think that's very important that we ask that question. Are we on God's side? Are we working for Him or are we warring against him? And we have to be honest. A lot of times we are warring against God. Um, sometimes we might think that, you know, practicing our faith and uh, being good comes at a price. And, uh, you know, maybe you think that the world is having fun without you. Yet uh, God has called us to war against um these um, sometimes these attachments or these attractions uh, that are presented to, to us often, and yet uh, it is that war that we have, that war of the flesh, and um, yet you know, asking ourselves honestly, am I on God's side or the other side? And so, whose side are you on? Maybe that's something that you could put on your fridge. <laughs> you know, we always have these gentle reminders on our fridge. I, my fridge is full of these uh, little memes and sayings. But again, being on God's side and praying that God will use us uh, in His peace plan. So again, I, I'm grateful to um, be able to share these with you uh, through these, uh, you know, these difficult months, it's difficult to watch war, and we have so much technology now. Uh, we always get the uh, the updates, and sometimes they're gruesome. And um, again, we just can't help but pray uh, for peace. And we have to do our part. And I think this is what Fulton Sheen, when you listen to him, his his call to prayer. I mean, every week, asking Jews, Protestants, and Catholics to pray, to pray an hour but especially Catholics, to go to Mass and to spend some time with our Blessed Lord uh, each day. Um, and again, we have that opportunity with the churches being open once again. So uh, again, that call to prayer that Fulton Sheen never missed a beat, always asking us to watch one hour with the Lord. And the way to combat that evil hour is to make a holy hour, and so to make great reparation uh, for that. So, again, a gentle reminder, uh, pray your holy hour. <laughs> All right, uh, my friends, we will now have Fulton Sheen give us a, a reflection from a retreat he gave a number of years ago, uh, and he's going to be talking on the topic of kenosis, uh, one of those big words, but he'll, uh, un he'll unpackage that word and uh, we'll know what it means by the time he's done his reflection. So uh, may I invite you once again just to sit back and relax and enjoy this great communicator, the Venerable Archbishop Sheen, as he gives a reflection on kenosis. Please enjoy.
I see we have a young audience in the $5 seats. I don't know how interesting this is going to be for you because I'm going to use some big words, but I will explain them. And apropos of big words, I was once giving a talk in the town hall of Philadelphia and I lost my way. And I asked a boy, where is the town hall? And he told me, I do not remember the exact address, but something like 12th and Chestnut. And he said, what are you going to do there? I said, give a talk. On what? Well, I didn't want to tell him that I was talking on my usual subject, which will be my subject this afternoon, the occipito frontalis of the convolistic convolutions of the metaphorical obliquiarum pelvearum. So I simplified it, and I said, well, boys, I'm going to talk on heaven and how to get there. Would you like to come and find out? They said, you don't even know the way to the town hall. <laughs> and another story comes to my mind about big words. I began my teaching career in England. And I was lecturing this particular day on the subject of theandric actions. Now that sounds very learned, but a theandric action is very simply one in which our blessed Lord combines his divine and human nature. For example, when our Lord picked up some dust, mixed it with spittle, and applied it to the eyes of the blind man, that is a theandric action because it was the action of God and man. But when you explain it to a class, you never make it that simple, otherwise you'd never be a teacher. It's always the business of a teacher to complicate the ordinary simple things of life. So I had spent 18 hours preparing the lecture, and honestly, I didn't know what I was talking about. I had the vaguest idea, really. And when I finished the lecture, I heard one of the deacons See, oh, he says, you know, this Dr. Sheen's the most illuminating lecture, most illuminating. And I said, well, what did I say? He said, well, I don't quite know. And I said, neither do I. So that day, I became conscious of the fact that sometimes you get a credit for being learned when you're only confusing. Now, I'm going to tell you about our Lord. I'm just addressing myself, apparently, to these people. Are you there? Yes. <laughs> but it's always a challenge. I'm going to tell you about our Lord. And let me read a passage from St. Paul, which you may not understand. And you like to carry away big words, too, don't you? So I tell you what you do. There are a number of boys and girls that didn't come to this lecture. You can be much smarter than they are because I'm going to give you a word and I will tell you what it means. And you ask them what it means. They're ignorant children. They don't know things. The word is K-E-N-O-S-I-S. -S, kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. 
Now I will explain it. Let me read this passage to you. From St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Incidentally, this passage that I am reading to you was once a hymn in the early church. Greek scholars have found the meter of this particular verse. And just think Paul wrote his epistles before the Gospels were written. So this was the creed in the eastern part of the world before we had any New Testament. And here is the passage. Let your bearing toward one another arise out of the life of Christ. For the divine nature was his from the first. By this is meant our Lord was always God. The divine nature was his from the first. Yet he did not think to snatch at equality with God. He didn't try to be like God because he was God. Who snatched at equality with God? Satan. I'm going to talk about the devil tonight. Satan tried to snatch at equality with God. Adam did too. Because the devil said to Adam, you will be like gods. But our Lord was God by nature. Now he made himself nothing. There's the word kenosis. He emptied himself. Emptied himself. Made himself nothing. And became... Assuming the nature of a slave. A slave. What does a slave do? A slave does two things. He does dirty things and hard things. So, our blessed Lord, who was always God, became man. That meant that he emptied himself of his glory. He humbled himself, became nothing, became a zero. I'm going to give you an example now that you young people can understand. Suppose you had the power to dispossess yourself of your body and just keep your soul. And suppose you wanted to have a kenosis and empty it. And you would put your soul into the body of a dog. Now think how humbling that would be. To take your mind, your understanding of things, and when you put it into the body of a dog, you would not exceed the limitations of that dog nature. First of all, you could speak, but you wouldn't speak. You'd only bark. You would have reason. You would know the right things to do. But you just follow instinct. 
Then there would be another humiliation. You would have to spend the rest of your life with dogs. Run with a pack. Knowing you're a thousand times better than they. Now, if you would find it humiliating to go into the body of a dog, what humiliation is it for God to become a man? And when he takes this human nature, he resolves hardly ever to exceed the limitations of this human nature. So God can suffer. When people suffer today, they say, well, does God know anything about pain? Does God ever go without food for three days or ten days? Does God ever thirst? Does God know anything about the wounds of those that are brought into accident wards and hospitals? Was God ever ridiculed and mocked? Was he ever in exile? Does God know what it is to be in prison? Yes. When he became man, he could suffer. And then in addition to that humiliation, he spend, had to spend his life with men. Now you children know that sometimes if you don't know the answer to a question, the teacher may get impatient because she finds it hard to be with dumb kids. Now think how hard it is for God to be with dumb men. This infinite intelligence. with those who are tardy of understanding. And they would ask him, what's the meaning of this simple parable? Now this is the person of our Lord, and this gives you some idea of what Christmas is. Because you see God in the form of a babe. Now, why did he take upon himself our nature? St. Paul says he became a slave. And the slave does hard things. But our Lord became man in order to transfer to himself our burdens. Now, what is transference? I'm sure many of you have seen that picture of a boy carrying another little boy on his back. And he said, he's not heavy, he's my brother. That is transference. Now our blessed Lord transferred three evils to himself. All the evils of the world can be reduced to three. Physical evil, like pain, mental evil like being mentally handicapped moral evil like guilt or sin 
Now let's follow the life of our Lord and see how he transferred ills to himself. First of all, physical ills. We read in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and Matthew repeats it, that our blessed Lord took upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses. Was our Lord ever sick? Very likely not. And why? Well, because our Lord never gave to man any power to do anything to him until the time of his passion. The moment he said now as he went into the garden, then men could do to him as they will, as they willed. But up until then, they tried to throw him over the over a hill. He walked through the midst of them. Three times they attempted to stone him without effect. How then, if our Lord was never sick, could he take upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses? By deep sympathy. Now, when you little children were very small, much smaller than you are now, you had tummy aches. And you had croup. And your mother was worried. Your mother suffered far more than you did. Because she understood your suffering. A mother suffers more than a delinquent daughter. And our blessed Lord, therefore, when he came to the blind and the deaf and the paralyzed and the leper... He so loved them that that pain was transferred to himself. That is why we read that when our Lord cured the blind and the deaf, what did he do? He sighed. He wept. He groaned. All of these agonies he felt. I'm sure, for example, when our Lord cured the blind, that he felt the blindness of a Milton. When he healed the deaf and sighed, that he was sensitized to the deafness of a Beethoven. So our blessed Lord, therefore, transferred to himself all the pains that we could ever suffer so that we would never say God does not know what it is to suffer. And then having overcome all of that in resurrection, he gave us the example of being patient under trial. So our Lord, therefore, transferred to himself physical ills. Now let's go into mental ills. Mental ills would be mental retardation, doubt, atheism, deep sense of loneliness at having lost the faith, despair. All of these people have to be redeemed. 
And how could they be saved except by the Lord taking upon himself those effects of sin? And he did that at that moment when the sun was ashamed to shed its light upon the crime of deicide and hid itself at high noon. And in the darkness, our blessed Lord uttered that cry, My God, my God, why? All the whys that have ever been asked in the world, he took upon himself and uttered that cry, which is one of the verses of a psalm. But the end of the psalm ends in joy. Again to remind us that mental ills as well as physical ills can be born in the light of the resurrection. And then he took upon himself moral ill or guilt. This was the principal reason for his coming. We owe a debt to God, a debt we cannot pay. Our Lord takes this debt upon himself. As a matter of fact, we deserve death because of sin. So our Lord takes death as a penalty upon himself. And he allowed, therefore, in the garden all the sins of the world to enter into his soul. I think all of the thefts of the world were put into his hands as if he were guilty. All the blasphemies of the world soiled his lips as if he had spoken them. And the agony of that guilt, being innocent, was so great that it brought from out of his body drops of blood falling upon the crimson olive, the olive roots of Gethsemane making the first crimson rosary of redemption. And then on the cross, paying the ultimate debt of death. And how explain innocence taking upon himself our sin? Well, Let us go to the Burma Road, World War II. A number of Japs had prisoners under their custody, and at the end of the working day, the Japs noticed that a shovel was missing. They gave an order that unless the shovel was returned within five minutes, Ten men would be shot. At the end of three minutes, no one admitted the guilt. Then one man stepped forward and he was beaten to death. When they got back to the camp, they found all the shovels.
he had taken the burden upon himself, the accusation of theft upon himself, as if he were guilty in order to save the others. Now that is what our blessed Lord did on the cross. That is why the cross is a very important in our lives. Then summing up now, all that our Lord has said. What does the word can know? Do you know Greek? You do. What does the word kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, mean? What does it mean? Empty. That's right. Huh? Empty. Making himself nothing. Our Lord emptied himself, made himself nothing. That's what it means. Now this we have described in order that you may come to a deeper understanding of what the life of Christ is. And the application of it is that we have to transfer to ourselves very often the guilt of others. There's a price tag on every soul in the world. Some are cheap, others are very expensive. And we have to we have to bear their burden, pray for them, sacrifice for them. I remember once I was hearing confessions on the eve of the first Friday of the month. And a young woman came to confession, into the confessional and said, I don't want to go to confession, I just want to kill time. And I said, how much time do you want to kill? She said, about five minutes. Who are you fooling besides God? She said, my mother. She thinks I'm going to confession. And I said, are you afraid? She said, yes. Oh, I said, I could make your confession for you if I saw you. She said, wise guy, eh? I said, I don't know. Let's see. Give me a chance. Let me pull aside the screen, turn on the light, and take a look at you. I said, you're a prostitute. She said, that's right. That is my life. But that's not all. Something else much more serious. I begged and pleaded with her to no avail. I asked her to go up and kneel at the communion rail for a few minutes. She said, I will think about it. I met her in the church steps. Asked her again. She said, after a half hour, I will tell you what it is and then run. She said, I made a pact with the devil. She said, I'm frightened to death. And she ran. I heard confessions that night and I asked every penitent if they would say a rosary for the conversion of a sinner. One refused. Interesting that one should refuse. I finished hearing confessions about nine o'clock and went up and knelt at the communion rail praying for nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, twelve thirty midnight. 
and I heard the church door open. It was this girl, and I went back into the confessional, and she went to confession. Here was a transference of someone else's guilt to another. Hence the importance of praying for one another, particularly for those who have morally and spiritually lapsed. Just as the clouds will pick up moisture from the sea and carry it over a mountaintop and then drop it on arid land, so too the prayers that we offer carried by the Spirit and dropped on other souls that need it. The whole work of redemption is therefore being carried on. I may possibly in another talk show you how, in a very special manner, the cross is magnified in our own lives. But let the conclusion of this meditation be one gratitude to the Lord for humbling himself, making himself a zero for us, dying for us, and then giving us his life. For after the resurrection, he appears to us and then sends his spirit. And we live by that spirit of Christ. Familiarize yourself with his life. Read the gospels. You will never attain a deep spiritual life without the scriptures and particularly the New Testament. Read them in silence. Read them in the family. In silence we best discover God. And once in your own personal life you begin to see that our Lord is not a teacher, not a revolutionist, not a sociologist, our Lord is first and foremost a Savior. He saves us from our sins. And that's the reason, for example, the church, after we were speculating for a few years of having children go to communion without confession, the church officially suggested confession before communion. Why? Because who were the children receiving anyway? A Buddha? Who is Christ? If he isn't a savior, he isn't anything. Well, you say children have no sense of sin. No. Just let... Now, there's a little girl down there, two or three years old. How old is she? Two, three, four? How old? Nine. Glory be to God. <laughs> you certainly don't look that old. Oh, well, if there's a two or three-year-old here. You know, suppose, suppose a mother, and I'm sure it's true of you. Suppose your mother said to you, Mommy doesn't love you anymore. 
tears would flow. Why? Because a child understands broken relationship. That's the essence of sin. And so, therefore, when we receive communion, we're receiving a Savior. This is the meaning of Christ. And now when you get home, take up your scriptures, knock off the dust, and then read the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians, verse 6. And you will recall the sermon that I preached to you today, and then you'll be helped to remember the word kenosis. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, thanks for joining me for another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And I want to invite you to visit my humble little website uh, called bishopsheentoday.com. And on the website, uh, we have hundreds of videos. Um, If you like watching Archbishop Sheen, Uh, on television or his lectures, we've gathered up almost all of them and put them into one place. And so you can just enjoy the uh, wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen uh, through uh, these many YouTube videos that are available. So again, there's a video section on the website. And then we actually have a a large audio uh, archive um, literally hundreds of recordings. I've been on the radio since uh, 2012. And uh, so we have every uh, podcast and radio show that I've ever done uh, on uh, the site. And so uh, that's, uh, that's 10 years. Uh, that's 500 uh, you know, shows. So there's lots to listen to if you enjoy podcasts. And so, uh, again, podcasts like this. And um, again, that's the listen to section of our website. And then there's a, a reading uh, a porthole where you can read a few uh, of these digital books that are free and available um, to enjoy. And, uh, of course, there's a place even you can purchase books. So, uh, again, if you'd like to watch Sheen, listen to Sheen, or read Sheen, bishopsheentoday.com is the place to be. And so, uh, again, Labor of Love we put together years ago. Uh, My webmaster says that over a million people come and visit the website every year. And so it's quite popular, so I invite you to come there also. And again, bishopsheentoday.com, because we we need Bishop Sheen today. And so uh, I want to thank you in advance for your support. And please know that uh, one of the uh, labors of love that we have is this, we have this heart for seminarians, especially. We, we try to gift seminarians Bishop Sheen books because we kind of feel that the key to the renovation of the church and the salvation of souls is to renew the priesthood to form good and holy priest. And so uh, we're trying to do that at bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, again, all of the proceeds that we make uh, go towards uh, funding that little project of gifting seminarians Bishop Sheen's writings. And so uh, the more they can think like Sheen and uh, um, understand the scriptures like Sheen did, uh, hopefully we'll uh, grow a few more new Bishop Sheens, and uh, we've seen it in some of these young priests. They remind us of Fulton Sheen, and hopefully, again, we're paying 
uh, some, um, I like to say, paying forward, uh, you know, making this investment in the church and, uh, of course, receiving the dividends. So, again, uh, spending time, let us continue to pray for our priests, especially, and our seminarians as they prepare to serve us in the church. And so, uh, Sheen would uh, say in his writings on the priesthood that um, you enter the priesthood to become not just a priest, but a victim, because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was both priest and victim. So uh, let us continue to pray. And uh, pray your holy hour, as uh, Fulton Sheen uh, reminded us in that recording today, uh, to pray that hour each day. So, my dear friends, until next week, may the Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.